you're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Monday, so in this episode, you'll be hearing one of our favorite and most actionable talks from past conferences. To sign up for the upcoming Flip My Funnel conference this August in Boston, visit flipmyfunnel.com and use promo code PODCAST for special pricing. This podcast is supported by LinkedIn, Marketo, Terminus, PFL, and BrightFunnel, titanium sponsors of the Flip My Funnel community. So this session is about the relationship between content marketing or inbound marketing. I use them interchangeably in the presentation. I used to get a little precious about that, but like honestly, I don't really care anymore. They're kind of the same thing. That and account-based marketing. Now, where this idea came from is back in January, I invited myself along with a colleague to Terminus for the day for a day of brainstorming, and Sangram was too nice to say no. So like we just literally invited ourselves there and spent a day with Sangram, Tony, and the team. And they were extraordinarily helpful. As we thought through what our account-based marketing strategy would be, how we would measure it, what assets we had, where we wanted to see the first signs of success. And, and a theme started to be detectable. And that theme was that many of the same philosophies, value system that makes for effective content marketing can also help improve an account-based marketing strategy. The difference is in the distribution. Inbound marketing, as the name would suggest, is you publish something and, and you wait for people to find it. Account-based marketing is much less patient. And I think that'll come through in the presentation. So let's get started. I joined Insight Squared. We're a sales performance analytics company. So any sales data you would like to pull out of Salesforce, but for some reason can't, there is an Insight Squared report for that. So I joined Insight Squared at the end of last summer, and a couple things became really clear. First is our marketing model was two-pronged. There was an inbound component and an outbound component. This is not outbound in the way that those who saw John Miller's presentation, uh, that John characterized outbound. This is the yucky kind of outbound. And so the inbound component was sort of classic inbound, right? A lot of people from HubSpot at Insight Squared. There was a blog, really afraid of going off of this. There was a blog, there was a concept of offer that lived behind a form on the blog. You fill out the offer, you get nurtured for the rest of your natural born life. That was that model. There's also an outbound model, which I mentioned is, is um, kind of the yucky side of what, what John was talking about. That too is a classic approach where you know what your target buyer's title looks like. You buy as many people with that title as possible. But a couple of things became clear very quick, very quickly. The first is the outbound model is structurally flawed. See, what happens is you believe the more you do something, the better you're going to become at that thing. And so you assume you're going to get better and better and better at spamming. And so... When you model your goals, they increase over time. But the reality is, if you are at all competent on day one, the second name you buy will be incrementally worse than the first name you bought, or else you would have bought the second one first, right? And so there's a decay curve in the performance of your outbound marketing. And what happens right in the middle? That is the fiscal cliff of spam. That's when... Every day that passes, every email send, bless you, 
that happens, your actuals and your results get further and further and further apart. I mean, your goals and your results get further and further apart. And that's where we were. We had long passed the fiscal cliff of spam. So I got there and I was like literally my first week and I said to the CEO, do you know how like effed up this really is? And he said, I knew it was a problem, but I didn't know we were that far past it. What are we going to replace it with? And so that led us down the path of, of ABM that I'll get into. The second realization is on the inbound side. The MQL is eating marketing. What happens is this. I think the serious waterfall, John very boldly had the uh, slash sign through the serious waterfall. I got to chuckle at that. What happened is the MQL started very earnestly. There is this metric that marketing and sales will agree to. It has a certain quality associated with it. And marketing's job will be produce this metric at volume. It'll be counting stats, as I think John called it. But when marketing is given an incentive to produce more and more of this, and there is not a universal definition for MQL, then marketing is given a kind of a perverse incentive. The incentive is to set the bar for an MQL as low as humanly possible. That's how you keep your job. Like I, I'm prone to say, show me how I'm measured and I'll show you how I behave. Well, if I am measured by MQL volume, I will behave by producing as many of them as possible, and I will do that by making the definition as easy to attain as possible. And as a result, if you go in this direction, every MQL you hand to sales is a broken promise, especially if sales has an SLA attached to follow-up. Marketers like to say that marketers like to say, salespeople say you give us lousy leads and Vice versa, you've all heard it before, and sales says, well, you, uh, marketing says you don't follow up with those leads in time. The fact is, if you're incentivized to set a low bar for an MQA, and then you still expect sales to follow up on it, you're the problem. And I've been the problem. And so it's those two things that we had to fix. This broken trust with sales and this flawed model, this flawed outbound model. That led us down the path to ABM. That led us to conversations with Sangram and, and many others in the space. So as we started down the path to ABM, we, we found ourselves thinking, are we in an either-or situation? Like, do we keep the inbound? Do we run inbound and ABM? Do we run inbound or ABM? Is there even a relationship between the two? And as we were walking down this path, I, I realized that it sounded like we were in danger of making a false choice. And so I do what people that are wondering what a term means. Um, I go to Wikipedia and look up false choice and false dilemma. And it tells this very funny story about, it's called Morton's Fork. This guy Morton was a tax collector. His job was to collect taxes for the kingdom. And what he would do is he'd go from house to house collecting taxes, but he would skip the dilapidated homes, figuring that they had no money. And if they have no money, there's no taxes to collect. So he'd move on until he was given instructions. The instruction was, if the house is dilapidated, it means they are hoarding money. And if they're hoarding money, it means they're rich. And if they're rich, they pay taxes. It's like Monty Python logic, right? It's, you know, she's a witch. And so Martin also discovered, like, the birth of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. And I felt like I, I identified with this where I said, wow, our job isn't, like, picking and choosing who we collect taxes from. It's not picking and choosing is this ABM or inbound. Our job is to grow the business. And in order to execute our job, we, aren't, we, we shouldn't be in the business of narrowing the options 
that are available to us, what we should be doing is picking the best of both and stitching them together into something that is very bespoke for this organization. And so then the more I thought about it, I said, you know, content marketing in some ways reminds me, at least of its stage and development, reminds me of account-based marketing. Like when I was on stages like this six years ago, talking about inbound marketing and content marketing, there would always be somebody and in fact, Maria and I were chatting and we met one of the somebodies. I said, this has been around forever, right? Like I remember people saying that the Michelin, tire, the Michelin restaurant guide was born from Michelin tires. We were trying to get people to put more miles on their tires going to restaurants, therefore wearing them out faster, therefore needing to buy more tires. It was an unbelievably long sales cycle. But, but it is content marketing and it's a pretty good idea. And so when I was up here on stage talking about, you know, starting a blog, people would bring this up and they'd say, hasn't this been around already? And you could say the same thing for ABM, right? These, the luxury box level at all of these giant stadiums is funded by big companies. And who comes to the big luxury boxes? Big accounts, big prospects. That's who funds these stadiums. So hasn't this been around for a long time? Yes, in many ways, the answer is yes, but not exactly. Let me explain how I see the difference, and I'll do it in the only way I really can, and it's by way of a metaphor. All right. If this were 1985, and I wanted to apologize to Maria Pergolino for all the times we battled when I was at Eloqua and she was at Marketo, and maybe I wanted to convey to her that behind all my cruelty maybe was some unspoken affection, I would do it by way of a mixtape. I'd spend all Saturday afternoon stitching together corny songs and then present her with my tape. And the record companies would know broadly that teenagers were doing this. And they didn't really care, right? There weren't warning labels in the cassettes you would buy. And there was no movement for, like, read-only cassettes. They didn't really give a shit. Because it was being shared one-to-one. Then these guys came around. Napster. And although academically, it's the same thing as a mixtape. In fact, that was their legal argument, was how is this different than duplicating cassettes? And the record companies, however, cared very deeply about Napster because it was fundamentally different. The cost and scale were so extreme that it, was a, it became a different animal entirely, although like philosophically, it was just duplication. It was Instead of one-to-one, it was one-to-infinite. And that changed music. And so in many ways, I feel like what's happened with, with content marketing and what's happening with ABM is that the ability to reach many people, the ability to do, to have ABM run more broadly than just Super Bowl tickets is game changing. And although conceptually it's similar, as a practical matter, it's fundamentally different. So while they have a lot in common, there are shortcomings to inbound and outbound that have given rise to ABM. The first is inbound ultimately is a long tail strategy, right? You publish something. Let's, let's follow the process. You pick a topic. You publish on it. Maybe it ranks, maybe it doesn't. Some people out there are searching for that subject. Some subset of those people find your link. Some subset of those click on it. Some subset of those don't bounce. Some subset of those read to the point where they reach the CTA. Some subset click on the CTA. There's a lot of breakage happening, right? I ran an extremely popular marketing blog. And our average post generated three leads a month. And that was, guys, that was the best of the best, that blog. Three leads a month. There's a lot of breakage in the system. It's not very efficient. And 
And John's right. It, uh, uh, for those that saw John's presentation, what you are is you're stacking value on top of value. So eventually, there's, there's enough there to drive a business or to complement a business. But it takes a long time to get to that point, and it's getting more and more difficult to do it with every new blog that's spun up. Now, if you think inbound has problems, you know, wait till you get to outbound. We've discussed that already. That's, I termed it internally as chasing the dragon. For those that don't get the expression, congratulations. You made much better choices than I did in high school. It refers to the decay curve following your first high. And that's the same decay curve that happens with outbound marketing. So we knew when we were going to kind of remodel, refashion our approach, that inbound was going to be one of the staples. We also knew that outbound, the value, they're just the results weren't there for it, not enough to justify, so that was going to get cleaved off. And ABM did nestle nicely in between. There was short-term value. You can kind of like jar a company into moving down the funnel a bit. But the results were also durable because you are trying to use techniques to build a relationship with an organization. So it's more than just that kind of blast email. So it seemed to get us to that short-term goal that we were trying to reach, but not in such an ephemeral way like with Outbound. Okay, so if you're with me at this point, you're like, well, there's a lot of slides to say that some combination of the two makes sense. If you're trying to figure out what blend you might want to consider in your organization, here are some very, very, very oversimplified charts. The first is, I look at it as almost a seesaw effect. If your addressable market is the Fortune 50, you should be all in on ABM, right? My, my father-in-law sells software to nuclear power plants. Like spinning up a blog is a really bad idea for him, right? What's, he already knows all the people. You can just call them. But HubSpot, on the other hand, right? They don't care if they're selling to Mack Trucks or Max's Trucking, right? They don't care. And so for them, inbound is actually the right play, right? It's very efficient when your addressable market is that large. For those of us in the middle, it's a little trickier. And Insight Squared is in the middle. I would say we're about 70% ABM, 30% inbound if I, had to, um, if I had to make a call on it. And then if you look at how the two functions work together, like you could look at it as saying we use inbound to attract and get that first conversion. And then instead of just nurturing them the rest of the way and handing them off to sales, marketing stays engaged and runs an ABM play at them. You can also use, particularly if you sell it into tech, you can also use technologies to cut off the attract and convert stage. Um, you can use DataNize, you could use DataFox, um, you could use Node. Um, there are a number of companies that can find lookalike accounts from your core users and help you kind of short circuit the system. Now, if you do, you, I believe you have a moral obligation to market to them in the right way, in the least spammy way, in the most targeted and constructive way, using those inbound practices so that you don't contribute to sort of noise spam. So let's talk about some of the things that we are doing at Insight Squared that wed account-based marketing and inbound marketing. And this, this, this deck has evolved over time. And so the slide I'm going to show you now is a, is a world premiere of the visual representation of our marketing model. And that's it. The thing is, like, I did a bunch of infographics, and like, I was afraid of being typecast the infographic guy. This is actually the most helpful of all of my, more helpful than any of those infographics. This is our marketing model. You know you have a really geeky CEO when you call him in the room, and you're like dying to present this to him, and you draw this from, for him, and he's like, thank God, this is exactly what we need to do. So I have a pretty hands-on CEO. The thing is, it gets even more comical. I believe in the Jim Collins ideology where he says, 
fire bullets, then cannonball. In other words, test, 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 and when you get a signal, then go all in. This isn't a bullet. This is the cannonball. This is the byproduct of all the work you're about to see. Okay. So after we met with Sangram, right around the time we met with Sangram, we decided um, we were going to run a test campaign to see if we could have a direct impact on close rate. So we asked our reps to pick a handful of ops that they were working and see what we could do to push them over the finish line. So it was the end of the year, and we sell into sales. And so we know that sales reps are pulling all-nighters or working long hours at the end of the year. And so we sent branded these white label energy drinks with the Insight Squared kind of logo and look and sent them a postcard that said, have a Monster Q4. I was hoping to get a cease and desist from Monster, but haven't yet. We sent them the case. And then we waited. And three months later, when we were able to do a retrospective, our sales cycle is at the far end, about three months, you're 40% more likely to buy Insight Squared if you got one of these cases of energy drinks. It was 65 bucks. Uh, anecdotally, one mid-market account, it's like a you know, $40,000 deal, said, I was going to push you guys into Q1, but you've got my attention now. Let's just get it done now for a $65 case of energy drinks. This is in Sangram's book. Sangram, you say, I sent them a can. We were more generous than that. We sent them 24 cans. And look, I think there's a lesson in here. If you're going back to your office and you're trying to figure, or you're trying to sell upstairs this notion of let's, let's do a test campaign, this is a good place to start. Like find the point in your sales funnel where the most breakage occurs and see if there's anything you can do to kind of reshape your funnel. And that's what we really targeted was like a tick down in our funnel where we're most likely to lose these accounts. What could we do to preserve them? And so I think this is a really healthy first test because you're starting at a very discrete stage. I'm going to talk a bit about mailers, but ABM shouldn't equal mailers. I have a feeling it's going to. I think this is a relevant example of fusing together ABM and content. So we sit on a lot of data. We know we have access to the Salesforce and marketing automation instance of hundreds and hundreds of tech companies. And so what we did is instead of doing a survey to figure out benchmarks, we published actual benchmarks. We published them, those tabs across the top where you see average highlighted, um, our company size cohorts. And in your classic inbound world, we would have published this and all high-fived each other and monitored the traffic and, call, and claimed victory. But we're not just looking for traffic. What we want to do is equip the sales team to be able to have more substantive conversations with their contacts. With a very slight change, and that change is this, each of those tabs produces a unique URL, and we've done sales training on this tool. Now when our sales reps are talking to a SaaS company, they look up the company size, and they will send them a link to the corresponding cohort of benchmarks so they can have a meaningful conversation about where this, team, where this company stands relative to companies that look just like them. It's a very slight tweak, but that tweak exposes something and exposes this. In an ABM world, the star of the marketing team is sales enablement. You know, sales enablement, it's, it's that flip my funnel concept. It's really the bottom of marketing's funnel. But in an ABM world, it's almost like the top of funnel blogger is in an inbound world. It becomes a real star of the show. This is another campaign that is, uh, this is going to become one of our staples. It is becoming one of our staples. We know if you, if we close lose you and you re-engage with us, you're twice as likely to buy. 
if we close lose you a second time and you re-engage with us a third time, you're four times as likely to buy. So our close loss pool, it's the most valuable pool for us to fish in. And so we've developed some fairly smart nurtures in our close loss pool content. And when we get a certain level of engagement with that audience, we send a postcard. And the postcard says, come running back. And it, link, it brings them to a landing page. And the landing page, they go and they fill out their shoe size. That's very weird. Why am I filling out my shoe size? If they don't, we'll send them a pair of shoelaces to nudge them along as a reminder. And what they get is a pair of Nike IDs in Insight Squared's colors. The only branding is the IS2 on the toe, on the toe tab. And that's it. If you get these sneakers, you're buying Insight Squared. Like if you've gone through that and you saw the cute come running back and you've gone and given us your shoe size, we're not going to lose you. So I tried to take the flip my funnel concept broadly and apply it to a webinar. And I say I in this and not we because this one was kind of a cluster. So I like way overthought this one. I said, all right, we don't really, in the, out, in the inbound world, you host a webinar and then you hold back something of value, like say a book, to try to get people to come to the webinar. And then you give a certain number of those books out, right? It's an incentive to get them to come to the webinar. I was like, guys, we're not in the webinar attendance business. Why do we give a shit who comes to the webinar, right? We want to sell them software. So why don't we flip my webinar? And I'll get the author to sign this book. And the signature will say, hope to see you at the webinar. And then we got a postcard. I mean, we got a bookmark. And the bookmark gave details on the webinar. Then we, was, we used Triblio to, like, uh, match the IP of visitors. And if you were on the invite list, you would also see a digital invitation. And we were all very proud of ourselves until 12 people showed up at the webinar. And it was, like, kind of humiliating. And all of a sudden, like, I did care about people coming to the webinars, despite my protestations earlier. And people called me on that. And I was like, well, I care within reason. I don't, you know. And so this looked like a disaster until, again, I was preparing for my board deck. And we looked at campaign touches that contributed, last touch that contributed to pipe. And this was our most effective and cost-effective campaign in creating pipeline, this book. Why? Because the sales team got to explain the campaign the, suddenly the bug was the feature, got to explain the campaign to the recipients. And that opened up the door to a conversation. It reminded me of this Hollywood adage that the agent's job is to get the actor the audition, not the part. We are in the get sales the audition business. And this campaign allowed sales to have a meaningful conversation. It gave them a really good excuse to reach out. Many of these examples for us are mid -market, uh, for our mid-market audience. But we also sell to an SMB audience. So we, have, we struggle to try to figure out how to do some of these more interesting, creative campaigns, but in an even more cost-effective basis, right? I can't send $225 sneakers if the account ACV isn't going to justify that. And so something we've done is we created these um, 3D pop-up cards that have inside one of our reports. And we're sending this pop-up card to two groups of people, to our SMB target accounts because I can get these cards for six bucks. I can justify that spend. And to CEOs and CFOs at companies that we're trying to reach because we know we're never going to get the CFO or the CEO to fill out a form. We're probably never going to get them on, the call, on a call with sales, but we know they influence deals. And so what we're doing, and this, this ties into John Miller's talk about running a play, what we're doing is as soon as a BDR gets any engagement at all with 
the contacts that he or she is reaching out to, we send one of these to the CEO. And the note, there's a handwritten note in it that says, hey, we've been talking to, been talking to once. Your, your sales department might want to check in with them on Insight Squared. And the idea is to try to create some pull internally for us. That's going live this week. The last one I'll bring up is, um, in all of this, the most natural accusation would be selection bias. Right? If you're having reps pick accounts, and I'm picking accounts that are already in the funnel, for the most part, one could easily say, like, these deals were going to close anyway. You're taking credit for what was going to happen naturally. And I know that this is a perception because I've heard it from my board. And so my antidote to that, that we're beginning, we began a couple weeks ago, is we're running a campaign at folks that are stuck in a sales stage. They're in a sales stage longer than average. And once they kick over that threshold and we know that they've been in that stage for longer than average, we're determining them as beginning to decay. And so we're doing two things. We're sending them a pair of Insight Squared branded socks and a postcard that says, don't get cold feet. And you flip it over and it says, why are you getting this? And it shows the report in Insight Squared that exposes to us that they're stuck in a sales stage. They get this sort of lightweight demo of the product at the same time as they get a little bit of swag. And the hope is now, if I'm able to say that we can prevent ops from decaying, I have a, I have a way to counteract the accusation that this is all at least with selection bias. They don't all work. I was really excited about this last time. I had a bizarre laughing fit on stage about this last time. I decided, I'll say I for this one because this one really is a screw-up, that I wanted to take one of our reports and make it physical. I wanted somebody to, quote, experience what an Insight Squared report would look like. So I took one of our reports, and we had somebody build a 3D model of it. And we had a couple hundred of them made. And we sent these out to mid-market accounts, and I was awfully proud of this idea. And people, like... It didn't make any sense to people. They thought it was a toy. They wondered why it wasn't made out of Legos. It's like, you know how expensive it would be if it was made out of Legos? They were trying to figure out, like, there's names on it and numbers. These aren't the names of the people on my team. Uh, it was really confusing. So one of our, my reps very sweetly came to my desk and explained all the good things that marketing was doing, and I knew it was building up to something. It's like, but no more of those 3D models, please. So remember, like, there's value in... in anecdote as well, especially before you have data. You get some compelling anecdote. Listen to it. It is, a, it is a form of data. I have a couple minutes left. I want to show you a little bit about how we're measuring this. This is a new section. So as John talked about in his presentation, there's this concept of a marketing qualified account, and we embrace the MQA concept. It's like the center of gravity for our ABM strategy. So an MQA is not an MQL with a new last name. An MQA is a purposefully higher bar. It is a, I, we've set the bar almost art, artificially high initially so that we can get rep confidence in it. And if we need to lower it over time, that's fine. But you're better off starting high. It's easier to go down than it is to pull it back up. And so an MQA is a metric that captures engagement across an account. So there are, there's a couple dimensions to it. One is multiple parties engaged over a period of time. The other dimension is fit score. So the higher the fit score, the lower the engagement requirement. The lower the fit score, the higher the engagement requirement. I don't want to take like a really high fit score and make it really hard for them to MQA. If you show some meaningful signs of life and you're uh, in fur A, you know, we want to talk to you. 
And so now we are charged with, and this is what you know, I look at every time I log on to my computer, producing MQAs at some reasonable volume. We've been able to convince the leadership team and convince the sales team that MQAs are a proxy for pipe. So we're never going to produce them at a very high volume. And in fact, we would do damage if our goal was to produce these at a high volume. What we want is reps, when they get an MQA, to know that it's special and be able to work it fully. And so there's some downward pressure on volume there. We measure the pipeline from that MQA cohort. So we follow that MQA cohort throughout. We look at how many ops are created from MQAs. We look at the win rate from MQAs. Are we more or less likely to win an account once it's MQA'd? We better be more likely to win it or I don't have a job. Our data tells us that we are 100% more likely to win the account if it's MQA'd. So the MQA cohort is, is, is certainly special. Then we also do, there's, there's sort of three baskets of accounts we compare to each other. And this is new. That's why, while this is fake data, the real data doesn't look any different. We look at MQAs versus warm accounts, that is accounts that have engaged with us, but not at the level of a marketing qualified account, above an MQL, but not yet at this high bar of an MQA, and cold. And then we look at the win rate and sales cycle for these three cohorts, and we compare them to each other. What's valuable about this comparison is that it helps us determine if the bar is set too high on MQAs or too low on MQAs, because that's a really important calibration for us to make. If, you know, if MQAs and warm close at the same rate, that tells us one thing. If there's a huge gap between MQA and warm, that tells us something else. So we have to calibrate accordingly. And I think that is it. Yeah. So I don't know how I... Uh, this clock has been a little funky. Um, I don't know if I'm over or if I have time for questions. Sorry. <laughs> Blame <Yeah>. Rosenberg. <laughs> yeah. So, so one thing, one thing I love about like Joe and his presentation is like there's so much truth to like all the different campaigns he's running, and I think he's one of the very few folks who are actually doing a shitload of direct mail, right? I mean, you think about like companies are not doing that much, and you're doing advertising plus direct mail and kind of putting it out together. So is this how different it is from like, you know, in your past life? Did you do direct mail? Did you do advertising or this no. is completely new? So the physical thing is new, but when we sit down to think about creative ideas, it feels like sitting down to think about infographics when yeah. I was at Eloqua or sitting down to think about what our next ebook was going to be. And like, that was really fun. Yeah. And then everybody did it. And then it was less fun. And so it's fun again. Like, this is, yeah. this is a good time. Now, look, spam, this is going to be a new form of spam at some point, <laughs> right? At some point, the desk is going to be overloaded with yeah. shit. And yeah. um, we're going to have to find another way to reach them. But I'm going to try to be, I'm going to try to pile up on the desk first. <laughs> the first one, yeah. Well, again, huge round of applause for Joe. That's freaking right. awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.